Hello, and welcome to Mornings with Joel, commercial real estate podcast, where we focus on rising stars and established players in commercial real estate and talk to them about how they are building legacies in today's marketplace. This is the uh, Mornings with Joel CRE podcast. Uh, we have a very special guest and longtime acquaintance of mine, Evans Charles. So uh, we're uh, reminiscing here, catching up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, if his words slur a little bit, it's because he was at the Super Bowl <laughs> last night. So <laughs> be patient with him. I don't think he's drunk. He's all That's right. right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for uh, saying that. <laughs> yeah, without a doubt, man. Without a doubt. So, yeah, man. So it's been exciting. Um, you know, I've, I've been actually. Uh, I guess following your career a little bit from a distance, you know, the, I think the last time we really got together, you were, um, I think you had just acquired or were finishing up the Atlanta Hotel, the one right across from oh, the West wow. Hall downtown. Wow. Okay. That was a while ago. Yeah, yeah. That was a while ago. Yeah. And you were knocking that out. I was like, man, you know, just doing your thing, you know, back at that mm-hmm. time, right in the middle of the city. And right. uh, it seems like that project went well. How, how did that turn out? Um, no, that was really what, really got me interested in, in investing in hotel it went super well and it wasn't how we planned it or so but just a little bit about it it was a, a multi-family building that was distressed you know from the, the the great financial crisis or so so we bought it at probably 25 cents on a dollar from what it was paid you know from what the last person paid for it wow. and then uh once we converted it twice one to one brand and then we just converted it to a marriott without having to do much more to it we were not on the market and we just started having people just making us offers or so some of these big institutional investors. So we sold to one of the largest institutional investors, Starwood Capital. And our investors got like a 44 IRR and a three plus multiple. So that we said to ourselves, we like this hotel space. So let's let's continue (laughs) adding after that. So Yeah. yeah, it was a good deal. Well, with those kind of returns, yeah, you can certainly fall in love with hospitality. It ain't no doubt about right. it. <laughs> right, 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 right. That's right. good stuff. That's good stuff. Well, I know, um, you know, we had Andy Ingram on uh, a few weeks ago, and mm-hmm. uh, almost every word out of his mouth was Evans Charles. So I was like, oh. talk to my man, give him a call. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. And so, Andy's a big promoter. Yeah, he is. He is, absolutely. So why hospitality? I mean, you know, obviously that deal turned out super well. But um, you must have had some desire to jump into that in the first place. So, you know, what was it about hospitality that caught your attention? Well, it's it's it's, it's really a story, and it was kind of like I tripped into it or so. So I was I started off small with small residential real estate in Philadelphia, and as I was evolving and ready to get into larger deals, you know, the, the natural path is is multifamily, right? So that's the way I was going, and that's what I was in the process of doing. And um, I was getting a haircut one day and, and my, my barber told me about a guy from D.C. that owned a hotel in Miami, right? A black guy. So yeah. I didn't think any African-Americans own hotels, you know, let alone South Beach. Yeah. So <laughs> so later on, you won't believe it. Later on that day, I'm getting um, going to my doctor's appointment and then mm-hmm. I pick up Black Enterprise. And this guy is on the cover of Black Enterprise. Same day, like an hour wow. later. And then it's saying that he just wrote some book that he just put out. So it was like this trifecta. So I went and bought the book that day when I left the doctor's office, read it from cover to cover, probably that day. He was the chairman of NABHood, which is, you know, the organization Andy Andy, uh, heads up. Mm -hmm. And they were having a meeting in about a week. 
So all of that happened. You were like, I got to go. <laughs> yeah, I just jumped on the plane. And when I saw these folks that looked like me that were on stage speaking about just, you know, hospitality, obviously, well, not obviously, but it, it still is commercial real estate, just has an operating business within it. There was just a lot of motivation. I felt that I could build a lot of support because um, I just didn't see that anywhere else in any other asset class at that time. And then I said, all right, well, I want to do a hotels. And then I just I just got in, immersed myself into it and just start learning it or so. Yeah, well, that's interesting. That's interesting because, you know, we, we often talk about on this podcast about exposure, mm-hmm. and exposing the next generation to what the possibilities are, because if, if you can't see it, you can't believe it. Right. Exactly. So, so you exactly. actually got to, you know, believe that and, and make it happen. You know, it's funny. You, you were talking about that situation. I'm sure you're talking about Don Peebles. Right. That's uh, right. In the hotel down there. You know, even, you know, my trip when he owned the hotel down to South Beach, I was like, I got to stay at this hotel and see mm-hmm. how, you know, this, this brother's running this hotel, right? Right, right, right. Uh, it was one of those rare things. So, um, you know, they, they put me up and took me real, took a real, took real good care of me, if I can get my words out here. Good deal, good deal. Yeah, yeah so it was really good. So so you went mm-hmm. from from desiring to get in the hotel, but give me a little bit more about your, your background, how you got into real estate in the first place. You said you were just doing single family well, like fix and flips or something like that? Or? Yeah, yeah. it was. And that was I kind of tripped into that as well, too. So just coming from humble beginnings, you know, not really having the resources to pay for college. I probably got through a year and a half, but I was able to beat out the start. I walked onto the football team. And then when I got that athletic scholarship, I was I thought I wanted to be a psychiatrist. I had a, a major really? in psychology. Yeah. yeah, wow, yeah. Until, wow. I, and, <laughs> until, until I took chemistry, which was the hardest class ever in life. <laughs> and I barely passed it. And I said, I'm not going to medical school because I can't, you know, yeah. the chemistry just, just threw me off. Yeah. But nevertheless, I just finished, got the degree. And then I had one more year to play ball. And, and I said, I'm not going to let this year go to waste. So I went to grad school. I didn't know what I wanted to do. My mentor just, he knew the dean of education. So he just said, get a master's in something, you know, while while they're paying for it. So then I come out with a master's in education and I don't have it figured out yet. So then I meet my my landlord who I'm renting from just started. I I just, I just became enamored by him. This guy owned the entire neighborhood. Everybody was coming, pay him rent every month. And he just, you know, he just got rode around on his bike and just collect the rents. And I'm like, wow, this is kind of cool. Right. And um, so that was my inspiration or so. And then, um, you know, we, we talked about residual income and putting your money to work for you. You know, I, I only was taught, you know, how to get a job, how to exchange time for money. Yeah. Right. So that's, that's all I knew. Right? I didn't understand how to put money to work and have it, you know, produce returns for me. So then I just started buying books. I just started listening to audiobooks and buying real estate books. And then uh, I met a, a mentor who helped me buy my first property. And it only required $1,000 out of my pocket. I'm 25, 26 years old. You know, it was a $32,000 foreclosure. I think the block was selling for maybe 80000 You know, I put ten, fifteen thousand 15000 into it or so from a credit card that I used at Home Depot. And I, I, I think you're from New York, but I, I recruited yeah. cheap labor from the neighborhood. All right. I figured out a way to get it done. I don't know if these guys had licenses or, you know, whatever. I figured it out. I got it fixed up and um, got it. So, you know, I saw, you know, I saw a profit 
and I never seen that kind of money in one check in my life. And the one thing is, uh, I didn't do anything with that money. You know, I'm again, I'm 25, 26 years old. I think it was like 20, $25,000. Yeah. I literally just put 100% of it into the next deal. Okay. And then I, and then I just kept doing that while I had a job. So now let's pause for it. a second because you, you brought yeah. up a good point. Because mm-hmm. you know we, we're trying to change this mental dynamic of how you know a lot of blacks deal with money, and mm-hmm. you know you didn't run out and buy a brand new Benz. No, I, no, no, I, no, no. Right. That, that happens a lot, right? People go mm-hmm. out there like, okay, well now I got to show the neighborhood that I made, right? Right, right, so, right, right. Please continue. You went out and you invested that money in the next deal. Yeah, I put it in the next deal. But then also one of the early books that I read was Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And Robert Kiyosaki, the author, he, he talked about letting your investments pay for your luxuries, right? Like you don't you don't use that with your, I guess to some degree, it's your money, but still. So the way I perceived it is, okay, if I want to buy that Benz and that Benz is going to cost me X amount of money per month, <laughs> one of my rental properties will buy that Benz for me. Yeah. It will pay for it on a monthly basis, you know? So that that's, so when I, I didn't get to that point to start even buying things for myself until I had enough investments that was spitting off enough profits that can take care of that kind of stuff. So, yeah. but I already understood that my first deal was first time home buyer, 97% leverage. So I can't remember, I said I came to the table with a thousand dollars. There's no way I can keep doing that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Then when I when I come in as an investor, they're going to say we need you to put down twenty percent. Where am I going to find the cash? Yeah. So when I had the twenty five thousand, I'm said okay, well I can at least go buy a hundred thousand dollar property now because mm-hmm. I have my twenty twenty five percent. And then as I kept some that I just literally fixed up and rented, I just was getting lines of credits from that equity and using that as down payment. So I always thought about my next yeah. deal and how can I grow. Right. So me going out buying luxuries would have halted my entire process yeah. and, and I wouldn't have been able to grow. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's funny you mentioned about those books because one of the most um, informative ones for me was the uh, the Cashflow Quadrant. Which hey, no, no, that one was for book. me too. Yeah, exactly. That was his exactly. best book because if you start understanding the flow of money yep. and how you don't really want to be on that employee side, you know, yep. when you're trading dollars for hours, you know, you want mm-hmm. to be on that, on that other side. So exactly. Yeah, very, very informative. So, well, that's yeah. fantastic. So you, you got that concept early on to start using real estate to pay for other luxuries or things that you wanted to do, have that exactly. cash flow, flow kicking off. And so, mm-hmm. so now you're still in this single family space. How did, how did things kind of progress from there? Yeah, I just, I, I got really active and um, I, I had a formula that was just working you know i had i started building relationships and it's really everything you do is about relationships right so when i started having you know i had a a reo broker that was calling me first before he even put things on the market and then i had a i had a hard money guy that can close in two weeks i mean i was paying him crazy interest and when i tell you this was in the early 2000s i was paying a guy 16 percent interest like five points but it didn't matter because I only held the property for six months, you know, 16% for, you know, six months of a loan. Yeah. It's not that big of a deal yeah. because I, my profit, because I was making money on the buy. So because I can close quickly, I can get it cheaper so mm-hmm. I can afford to pay that higher interest rate, you know? Yeah. So I just got really active. Remember we were doing deals every 30, 45 days. It was just, mm-hmm. it was just active, active, active. And it was, it was, it was a great, you know, high, right? Just it was a nice flow. And then obviously you want to grow, you know, you want to grow, you want to get into, you know, larger deals. And that's what happened. It was just an, an organic evolution 
to getting into more larger multifamily, you know, six units, 10 units, 30 units, 100 units, and then the hotels came came about or so. Yeah, yeah. Now, that's, that's real interesting. You mentioned something else that was very interesting that a lot of people miss as well. They often focus on the profit on the backside, but you really make your money on the front side by oh, yeah. how to buy right. You know, exactly. That's exactly. A that, yeah, a lot of people don't understand. So it's really understanding the math. And at the end of the day, if you take the emotion out of it, it becomes a lot easier to get deals done because you understand it. it's all about numbers, right? All about numbers. numbers make sense, yeah. Then you do the deal. If the numbers don't make sense, you don't do the deal, right? So that's how you all market the numbers. on the front end. Yeah. Exactly. And just, just to piggyback on that, you know, and I've carried that same strategy into the real estate that we're doing today. It's always been a value-add strategy. Now, there's many ways to skin the cat when it comes right. to <clears throat> investing in real estate. But we would. it's real simple. I mean, we would literally buy a property that has something wrong with it, mismanaged, undercapitalized, something broken about it, right? Mm -hmm. But it's in a location where the values of something on an after repair value is at X and we're buying it here. So if we're buying it here and then after our repair, we still have another 20, 25% cushion to get to that value number, Mm -hmm. then it can make sense to us. Same thing I do in the hotels as well too. It's, it's, It's no different, right? So yeah, that's that's just that's been the strategy. Yeah, yeah, and obviously it's working, and that's that's really the, the way you do it. You got to know those numbers on the front end and take the emotion out of it, right? Yeah, it's all about the numbers. So exactly, good, good point, good point. So now let me let me ask this because the the hospitality industry, as you know, it, it kind of got a black eye during the um you know this this COVID situation. What's your thoughts? Because I know you've shifted more toward development. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but. What's your thoughts on acquiring hotels at this particular point in time based on, you know, the COVID situation and and the way things are? Well, I got into hotels when it had a black eye back after the, the you know, the great financial crisis or so. And it was, you know, and typically when there's a big correction in in real estate, you know, hotels typically are are least in favor, Mm -hmm. right? Because they have a higher risk factor. But when things are good, Hotels are better than everything else, right? So again, we talked about buying things right. So mm-hmm. at that time in 2010, I'm figuring, you know, I want to be a contrarian, right? So no one wants to touch hotels in 2010. And so, you know, sellers are becoming way more distressed and their prices are coming down. And I'm looking at historically, I can look back at a hundred years and Real estate is cyclical, and I can look at specifically hotels. Yes, they may go here, but they always come back, always come back, right? People are always going to travel. There's always going to be that demand. So, yes, today hotels have a black eye, big time. And the unfortunate part is I own hotels that were worth this that has now, you know, come down. Luckily, we had, you know, the government stepped in with the CARES Act. And a lot of the PPP loans, EIDL loans, that stuff kind of helped us, you know, stay afloat. But you also, the what I learned from the last downturn from the other guys that that lost their assets was how they capitalized the deals. They over leveraged themselves, you know, or they put certain kind of debt on deals that when times get hard, you get in trouble real quickly, right? Mm-hmm. So I was always conscious of that with how we capitalize our deals. So when times go down, hopefully we have enough cushion. We didn't over leverage ourselves. We have more equity in the deal and we can stay afloat and ride the wave when we come back up. So 
yes, black eye today, we understand it. No one wants to touch it. And we're hungry and looking for opportunities like crazy. You know, we're, we're, we're about to go into contract on a deal right now that we're probably close on another hotel value add deal that we're going to buy a full service and transition it to a, a dual brand select service property or so. Yeah. But what happened in COVID when you talk about just the pivot, we also said to ourselves, this is a niche and a lot of people don't understand it. When I talk to my other developer friends and they're all doing mixed use, they don't want to touch the hotel. We are, we're getting the calls and we like to be that that partner that get, gets those calls because a lot of people don't understand it. But at the same time, we said to ourselves, we want to be more diverse and we want to have different asset classes in our portfolio as well, too. So it's not just everything is here at one time. you know. So right now, everything went down during COVID. But hospitality and retail went down more than multifamily and obviously industrial is still killing it and some other, you know, asset classes. So if we're diverse, it just keeps us just more afloat, depending on, this, you know, the cyclical nature of the market or so. So, I mean, I'll let you answer your next question. I don't want to go too no, no, far. No. But. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, good point. Good point. So and that's you, you brought up something that um, I wasn't aware of at this point. So you are carrying some hotels right now? Uh, currently, because I, I was thinking that you were doing all value add and, and then selling them off. But, uh, well, yeah, but but but, but the yeah, but the problem is, is they're typically like a five year hold, okay. and if you're on year three, yeah, and COVID happened, you didn't sell them yet, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, you got to ride it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm definitely riding it out on, but but you know what? The the, the beauty and the blessing is, our lenders all work with us. And th- that really was 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 a big difference maker or so. Mm-hmm. And and things are, you know, picking up. Unfortunately, we keep having these new variants come out. You know, I'm waiting for that to just kind of stop and COVID mm-hmm. to officially be behind us or so. Um, that's interrupting our recovery. But we are, you know, year over year, definitely showing growth. And, you know, we're all thinking that bearing nothing new crazy comes out with COVID that we can start seeing 2019 levels the end of this year, you know, okay. beginning of next year or so. So, well, and then, you know, things will, you know, pick back up and start moving in the right direction again. Well, you, you bring up a, a big point, though, about the lenders being willing to work with you. And, um, you know, like the work that Kirk Sykes and I was, was doing through the recession and, and all of that, um, you know, helping these banks out in the conservation space. They're only willing to work with you if you put yourself in a position where you're going to be worked with. And that, mm-hmm. that's a key lesson also that I certainly want our guests to take away from this is that, you know, if you buy right on the front end, you protect yourself by the, the type of leverage and how much leverage uh, you put on a deal. You do want to keep your down payment down, but oftentimes having some equity in the deal at the right balance makes sense in order to uh, protect you. You get the ride that way, you know, coming mm-hmm. down if it does come down. So. Very, very powerful point from that standpoint. So, you know, so good job on that. Continued success. And we're certainly happy about that. You know, but then all of a sudden, we get this big revelation that there's this mega project going on in D.C. And there's Charles is playing point guard. So what's what's going on, man? What's going on? Well, what's up here in the East Hill? Right. 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 No, you know what? Our our mayor, in my opinion, has done something unprecedented. Right. So, you know, 
equity and inclusion, you know, since George Floyd, that's been a big buzzword. Mm-hmm. And there are different corporations, municipalities, private sector that are that are doing things to address that equity and inclusion. And the way I see it is, you know, how do we how do we close that wealth gap, right? right. So one of the things that our mayor has done is all RFPs that that has a sale or a lease of DC land, that equity and inclusion component is a piece of it. But but it's a little different than what it was historically because DC has always had probably one of the most black, one of the most progressive black cities in the in the country or so, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So we've always had like what's called a CBE program where these development deals would always have a CBE partner. A lot of times we were never driving the bus, right? So one of the big majority firms would be driving a bus. They get the credit because one of us is on the team as relates to DC, et cetera, et cetera. Well, this time the the RFP is saying that they want to see one of us in the lead, Mm. right? So that was a game changer. So what happened was so some of these projects may be larger than what we've done historically from an experience standpoint, but we can come together, mm-hmm. right? So you and I, you and I may have never done, you know, a hundred million dollar deal. Maybe you've done 40 million, I've done 40 million or so, but together we can put our resumes together and we can take advantage of something like that. So that's what it's created because I was actually reaching out to some of the majority firms and for the first time they were saying, I'm I'm sitting on the sideline. Like I'm not gonna go spend a hundred thousand dollars chasing an RFP where the writing's on the wall, you know, as relates to who the target, you know, lead investor is. So now you have a situation where you have African American firms competing against each other, which is which is cool, but we're so we make up such a small percentage of it. And it's even better if we just come together. And maybe we're the only responding, but all of us are in a deal together. You yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. So some of that is actually happening right now. So I said to myself, this is this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, right? I don't know. This is the time is now to pivot. So we went after our first deal, and it was a it was an it was a historic school that was um around during segregation. It was a blacks only school way back in the day or so that we were going to two buildings we were going to convert to all probably like 95 affordable um, apartments or so, right? Mm-hmm. So we, we we submitted a bid. I got a lot of education just going through that process. I thought we were, you know, we, we had a, a, a decent proposal, but we did not win. And and I'm glad we didn't win in hindsight, because had we won that one, we might not have, you know, they, they wouldn't have probably given us two back-to-back deals. And that one was a $50 million deal. The next one was a $600 million deal, right? So there were these other, there was like six, five, six deals out on the streets. And I'm saying, well, wow. So then I wasn't even thinking about this one at first. I was thinking about a different one. But then you may not know DC, but we grew up here and there were areas where we spent time and we didn't, we never knew it was waterfront. Because it was probably industrial, it had buildings, and we didn't have Google Earth at the time. You know, yeah. we, we don't see DC from an aerial, right? So, right. I, like, even where our Nat Stadium is now, I never knew that there was waterfront behind all that. So, this area was the same way. Like, mm. DC Jail is over here, old DC General Hospital was here, the old RFK Stadium where the Skins played is here. You just didn't know. When somebody said to me, Oh, this is waterfront, and this could be prime for hospitality as well, too, I said, Wow. Looked at it on an aerial. And then I started just putting together a team. And you know what? The thing that really 
where I really tapped into is the organization where you and I met mm-hmm. was Reese. Mm-hmm. In my humble opinion, I think that Reese is a combination of the most talented black folks, I think, in the world in commercial real estate. Right. So what better place to think about and tap into if you're trying to put together a team of talented folks mm-hmm. now? Local is important for our city where we don't we're not all that welcoming of just everyone else coming in here and just taking advantage of our, you know, of our economics. We want our local folks to to win. And our government feels that way. But I said to myself, but you know what, if I can bring more muscle and it's and it's out of town, um, but it's black muscle as opposed to local you know, non-black muscle to do something of this nature, I thought that that may be a better sale. So I brought on, I don't know if you you remember Meredith Marshall from, yeah, um, I know. B- from B- yeah, yeah, from BRP. So I gave Meredith a call. And the good thing is, is his partner is also a Washingtonian. He, he, okay. he was born and raised in DC. So that helped the story. Yeah. So when he came down he heard, read the RFP. I told him what the plans, you know, that I was thinking. He said, look, let's do it. Right. So when he joined, you know, they have, you know, a track record, 14 year track record with Goldman Sachs. They've done a couple billion dollars yeah. of development with a, with a couple billion in the pipeline. They're one of the largest affordable developers in the country. So that checked that box off real strong from a standpoint of affordable housing, which is what our mayor is really about. We're trying to really push affordable. Mm-hmm. And then I just went from there. I built out a local team. Look, you understand that there's there's experience, there's ability to capitalize, there's politics. That's what, there's a lot of things that go into these RPs, and I had to think through how do we check off all the boxes, and how do we assemble a team that brings value that checks off all those boxes. Mm-hmm. So, so I just went on a mission, and I just started assembling the team one by one by one. So another key person we got on the team was uh, the former councilwoman for Ward 7, which is where this property is. And she was the councilwoman for, for, for 10 years there. So a big component is getting community support, yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you got to check that box, right? You got to check that box, right? Yeah. You know? So it was just it was just strategic moves like that. And that and and but the thing was was we're we're new to to the city as it relates to getting one of these deals. So that was also a risk a risk factor because they don't I live here. But being in hospitality, I'm doing deals everywhere else, but yeah. in D.C. proper or so. So um, we had to overcome that. And with, with, with God's blessings or so, we, we, we were awarded the deal. So it's it's a life changing opportunity. It's six hundred million dollar deal, million two square feet of waterfront development. I personally don't know of any all minority team that has developed something of this magnitude in a major gateway city like D.C., I think it's something that our great great grandchildren will be proud to know. You know who was behind this, and I don't know the last time you've been to DC and you see our waterfront development from the wharf, which is a two billion dollar project, to mm-hmm. the navy yard. And if you were on a boat and you were traveling, you know, along the Potomac River into the Anacostia River, you would then get to this site in like ten minutes. And this is going to have docks. The boardwalk is going to be phenomenal in the future as well, too. So, very 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 excited about it. Yeah, yeah, no, it's exciting. Um, and I, I get to DC pretty often, so you know it's an easy okay. trip from Atlanta, where I'm at. So you know, to run okay. up, have some meetings, run back, it's real easy. So yeah, uh, yeah, but no, that's that's phenomenal. And um, by the way, when you talk to Meredith, my team has been trying to catch up with him. So tell him to return some phone calls. 
Okay, okay. Will do. Will yeah, do. Let him know. Will do. They've been trying to catch it, so. But, um, okay. but no, that's that's fantastic. I mean, that's really what it's, it's all about, you know. And I remember having a, a conversation with Charles Frazier a while ago, and I was talking about how, you know, it's really the opportunity to, to change the guard. You know, mm-hmm. you remember the way Reese initially started, it was like three figureheads. Right? Mm-hmm. I ain't gonna call mm-hmm. no names, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, 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 right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then over time, it's like, okay, you know, how do we change the guard? You know, how does that next mm-hmm. group step up so that we stay viable and doesn't die off? You know, but it's been growing. You know, which obviously has been great. You know, because mm-hmm. of that. so mm-hmm. it's a really, really exciting project that you're doing. Um, you know, the DC waterfront. We actually looked at a at a deal over on M Street. You know, near the near the waterfront and. Um, you know, there was a lot of issues involved in that. But it's like you said, it gets political because of there's only one waterfront, right? Mm-hmm. If you do it right, you can really do well. If you do it wrong, you could be a disaster. So and everybody's looking at you. So you gotta be careful. But um Yeah. Yeah. And and, and, and I did I didn't tell you the program though. Let me share the program. Yeah, yeah, please, please, please. Yeah, you know, so basically, you know, like I said, there's a strong push for affordable housing. So we're we're delivering eleven hundred units. One third is going to be deeply affordable. One third is more of the workforce housing type of populational income population. And the other third is market rate. We're doing a Marriott hotel, 150 key extended stay with a beautiful rooftop with unobstructed views to the capital from where we're from, where it's going to from an elevation standpoint, because we're trying to create mixed. We want to create a mixed income community and mixed age. We're also doing, uh, we have a co-living component. We have about 120 beds. We, we partnered with a group called Common out of New York mm-hmm. to implement this co-living strategy where folks, a lot, of, a lot of times younger professionals who can't afford, you know, just the market rate rents to live in the core of urban areas or so, they're fine with the roommate concept, right? And we create these larger three bedroom units that are designed for roommates or so to give them an opportunity to be able to have access yeah. to, to leasing in, 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 in such a community where we're doing about 65,000 square feet of retail. We have like a 35,000 knit box grocer that we're targeting, not committed, but we're in conversations with several folks. You know, we're, we're talking to people like Target or so, just as an example. Yeah. You know, we understand that Wealth creation in our country most of the time comes from people owning their home, right? So what can we do in a community? And Ward 7 is is east of the river, even though this is like on the river and it's on the west side of the river. But, you know, but the map shows that it's still part of Ward 7. And Ward 7 and 8, you know, is typically where you've had some of the lowest socioeconomic residents of the city, Right. So our thinking has been, how do we drive as much benefit as possible to that community? So we're also building townhomes. So we're building townhomes. Some some will be affordable. We're partnering with some local nonprofits to help some of the residents with financial literacy, you know, how to not only just you know, qualify and get a mortgage by improving your credit. But how do you, how do we keep you, you know, in these homes? Because a lot of times we get in these homes and we lose these homes, right? Mm-hmm. So we have townhomes, we have two over two townhomes to even break the price point down, you know, so it's basically taking one townhome and cutting it up into two, right? Mm-hmm. And then we're going to have condos. So totally we have about 126 home ownership opportunities that we've created. Mm-hmm. The city wanted us to build a park. So we're building a park with an amphitheater, 
include some water features. There was a, a, a young girl abducted from D.C. General Hospital named Relisha Rudd some years ago. So we, we touched base with the family. So we're naming, naming the playground in honor of, you know, Relisha over there. Did I cover everything? Yeah, I think I did. I think I did. Okay. So, yeah. Interesting, interesting. How are you going to pay for the green space? Because that's always uh, an anchor on the on the deal, you know, because it's not a consistent, you know, cash flow. Or is there enough profit in the deal where it doesn't really matter? No, no, you bring up a good point. And, and people see these big numbers and they think everybody just gets rich, but they don't realize that, you know, developer has to pay for things like that, have to yeah. pay for infrastructure. I mean, there's a lot of things that kind of really, you have to massage the economics in order to make work. But we we have some very smart people. So we had to figure out, you know, how to structure the deal from the cost of the ground lease to any subsidies. I mean, you know how it works. So, we, you yeah, know, yeah. I, I can't get into all the specifics or so, but we, we figured out a way to, to, to make it work. And then we're hopeful with the new infrastructure bill that was passed. Right. I mean, this this deal is a, it should be a prime target for that money. Right. It's it's affordable. It's it's urban. It's the nation's capital and it needs a significant amount of infrastructure. itself. So, so yeah. we will be trying to tap into those federal dollars to also help subsidize the project and help it uh, and help the economics make more sense. Yeah. Yeah. That might be a good way to go. You know, I, I, you were well, back to my mind, uh, we were having a lot of meetings at one point with Victor Hoskins up there about um, conservation and doing things like that. And, you know, it even got to the point of all the city's attorneys meeting with all of our attorneys. We all flew up from Atlanta. It was challenging because D.C. is just a very unique place. And in the transitions of the political uh, environment there take place. And, you know, it's just very interesting. But, but you know, keep that in the back of your mind. A conservation strategy might actually work to help offset the cost of that land. It's associated with it. So just something to okay. think about. Yeah, going Okay. Okay. All right. Appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. Yep. So, but um, but let me do this. This was uh really exciting and informative, and I don't want to keep you all to myself. So we tend to use the last 20 minutes for a little bit of QA. So uh, we'll open it up. And um, if you guys have any questions, go ahead and, and put those in the chat. Or if you can raise your, your virtual hand, you know, we will call on you and, and see if we can get those questions in. Let's see here. So in Jerry, okay, you're just saying, uh, yeah, we're all a little groggy from the game. Yeah, we are a little groggy. From the game. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm tired too. <laughs> but, it's, but it's all good. It's all good. So we're, we're good. yeah. So while we're waiting on those hands to come in, what's the total uh, capitalization of, of this deal in DC? Uh, what do you think it's going to top out at? Uh, once it's all oh no, it's, it's. I think exactly. It's probably like five hundred and. $64 million or so is, is, is what the deal is going to take. And, and also keep in mind that the, this is by far will be collectively the largest project in, in D.C. history because hmm. this is a total of 67-acre site. Wow. So our the one that we just, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what we just, and then the RFK site, which is still owned by the federal government, is like 150 acres. Hmm. So our mayor just announced once the once our the Washington football team changed their name officially that, you know, she wants the team to come back to the city and she wants the team to come to this particular site because we it's already prime. It's already it's an events um, and entertainment district. It's already has a stadium there that's going to be imploded, you know, pretty soon. So when it comes to development, there's just this is where it's at. 
And then adjacent to it, I'm sure you've heard, it's Capitol Hill. Mm-hmm. And then you have the Anacostia River, right? So it just, it makes perfect sense. So our parcel is about 6.8 acres. Mm-hmm. And then another parcel that just was awarded next to us is probably like five acres. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be more RFPs that's just going to keep coming until all of this gets developed. And then the RFK site until all that gets developed. So yeah. it's it's going to be really, 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 really big. Yeah, the stuff going on up in D.C. is uh, really, really exciting. Um, so mm-hmm. we look forward to how it continues to, to go and um, go from there. And we got Herman Bulls coming on in a few weeks, so I'm sure Herman Oh, awesome. Too. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 He's, he's the, the real man deal. up there right now, so, you know. Yeah, he's the real deal. <laughs> yeah, so. absolutely. So, all right, so, uh, and Jerry, um, I know you're not shy when it comes to speaking up, so why don't you ask your question, if you don't mind, if you can come on, on camera. No, you don't have to come on camera, but just uh, if you want to ask your question directly, that would be cool. Thank you for being on. I just, you know, sitting here and listening to your story and, you know, uh, how you built your career. One of the one of the five, six questions that came up was, you know, what was one of the most pivotal moves or pivotal, when I say moves, like, were there team members, investors, education? Like, what were, what were some of the most critical moves that you made that really made a difference for you? Hmm. That's a, that's a good question. It's been a lot of them or so. I think being, even on an, on an Atlanta deal, being faced with adversity of almost losing everything, which I've been there before. I don't, you know, and, and I've changed my strategy significantly. But just speaking about when I first got into hotels, one of the things that I did that I, don't, I would not do or recommend doing again was whatever available cash that I accumulated, I put it all into a deal because you know I, you know it, the equity was obviously the equity requirement was was a lot higher. But what I would do in hindsight is, is syndicate that equity, meaning that I would I would I would go to different people and and spread the risk and share the upside with them as opposed to me seeing all the upside to myself and putting all of my money in one deal. So being caught in adversity, even with that Atlanta deal, with the first strategy we had, put us in a position where we almost lost it all. And if it wasn't for coming up with the idea to go to Marriott and getting Marriott to agree for us to get their flag over the one that we had, I mean, the NOI probably increased 300% just by the Marriott flag versus this other flag. And we did nothing different to the product or so. Experiencing extreme adversity and never, ever, ever losing sight of trying to, you know, always thinking that I'm, we're going to figure out a way out of this. Always being an optimistic thinker and and trying to talk that into reality by our actions as well, too, um, has been, you know, just some things that has really worked for us. And COVID is another example. You know, when, when COVID hit, I mean, you know, a lot of people were thinking, is this is this it? Are we going to just lose our shirts? So because one of the things with African-American investors, and you can look at this, I just came from the Super Bowl. When you see, you know, some African-Americans who get a head coaching job, if they don't do well, they don't get a second chance. With us, if we mess up a deal and we mess up money, investors are not going to give us a second chance. Now, that's not the same for non-Black folks or so. So we're very, 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 very key on we just can't afford to make a mistake. And we can make mistakes, but we can't afford to make a cataclysmic mistake where we, for me, where we 
we have to give the keys back. Now, people tell me all the time, even other black, it comes with the territory. I don't know what that feels like. I don't ever want to know what it feels like. <laughs> but older guys still tell me, Evans, do not think that that's the end of the world, that that can happen in our business or so. So that was a long-winded way of me just giving you an example of me having a very pivotal moment. Well, but I, I appreciate you sharing that. that that's a, a big point. And, and it's really the reason why, Evans, that uh, so many minorities, even in the fund space, outperform their larger mainstream competitors because they're they're much more careful with that mm-hmm. capital. You know, mm-hmm. they know that they're not going to have another billion raised next month like BlackRock does or, you know. One exactly. So, yeah, that, that's very important. I want to mention something also in Jerry, just because I've, I've known Evans for a long time, that... Um, you know, if you notice what he was saying, he was willing to get out there and try and ask for it. He just, he went for it. You know, when, when he heard about Don Peebles and all this situation there, he didn't say, oh, okay, that's cool. And just sit at home, right? You got on a plane and went to the event to learn more and you got engrossed in it. So, you know, putting forth that effort is um, is, is a large part of, of the success as well in making it happen. So. But, in a, but in addition to that, at some point, you, you got to believe in yourself and you got to take some risk. Big time. Big you got to take some risk. You got to, you got to, you got to jump out there. Yeah. If you don't believe in yourself, no one else will, right? Yep. That's part of yep. the story. All right. John, you had a question here. Um, when you speak to, or will you speak to investing in hotels in this area of, uh, era rather, of B&Bs? So what do you think about that, Evans? You know, how, how do you fare with the uh, onslaught of the uh, Airbnbs out there of the world? Yeah, well, I mean, Airbnb have had significant growth or so, and I think generic perception is that it's going to really take, it's been taken away from from hospitality, and it's going to be a big disruptor in hospitality, right? But I heard someone say this, and it made all the sense to me. There's a big difference from what Airbnb does and what we do. So Airbnb is in the lodging business. We're in the hospitality business. And there's a difference, right? So if you're just looking for lodging and just space, obviously Airbnb is doing a great job doing that. But what Airbnb has also done, it's expanded the playing field. It's it's not necessarily just extracting from the travelers who would traditionally just stayed in hotels, but particularly a lot of younger folks or so. And maybe that's some of the new folks who could have been in hotels. But it's 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 coexisting very well, and it's not really as big of a detractor from the hotel space as people think that it that it is. Or so I just I stayed in an Airbnb in uh in in LA. <laughs> we rented a house, so I'm I'm you know I don't I don't have an issue with it. We like to be where business travelers need to be, right? And our strategy. And if we're if we're in markets where there's corporate and business travelers. I don't think their corporations are going to just allow them to just go around staying in Airbnbs all over the place. I, I don't know if it can change, but pe- people also need services that we provide that you're not going to get with Airbnb. People come in town because they have meetings and sometimes they have banquets and catering needs or so that that we can provide at a hotel and also being centrally located to where they need to do business. And not that Airbnb can't can, can have that as well. But again, not as much of a de- detractor as you think it is. And I think the two can coexist. All right. Good point. Appreciate that. John, hopefully that answered your question. Uh, if not, let us know. But I, I think that was well. Yeah, that did. Okay. All right. Thank you, John. Appreciate that. Casey, has, uh, what would you uh, contribute to the success of winning the bid? City council members' participation? 
So what would you say about that? You know, the, the bid obviously for the uh, East Hill project. Well, it hasn't gone to city council yet for a vote, but I think we put together a compelling story. I think we had a program that met the needs of the RFP. I think we put together a team that not only, we, we, we were an all African-American team. We were 51% locally owned. I made sure we structured it that way. We were 51% CBE designation. And then when we had to go to the community to weigh in on the different projects, the, the ward in which this was located in, out of the six commissioners, we got five out of six to vote for us. So that was also very, very, very impactful that, that we, we, we got their support. We did get the local council member for Ward 7 support as well, too. So that, that was another factor. So program, team, community support, I think those are the, those are the, key, the key factors. Okay, sounds good. KC, does that... Satisfy your question? Yes, it does. I just wanted to pay homage to Mr. Charles uh, being oh, a student. Yes, Casey, <laughs> my, my, my professional name. <laughs> being at Howard, like you said, I, I never knew that the waterfront was just there. And mm. I just want to pay homage to you since this is Black History Month. Uh, mm -hmm. You're definitely making history, and I'm proud of you. Oh. So I'm just, I just had to stop what I was doing and just you know, pay homage. Oh, thank you so much for those kind words. I really appreciate that. Oh, yes, definitely. And, yeah. I, and plus, I love your co-living strategy. I like that. Great. Well, we're, we appreciate your service as you're touching the future by being an educator. Like I said, I have an educational background. So thank you for what you're doing and the impact you're having. Oh, no, 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 no. I went to school at Howard in engineering. I, yeah, oh, I'm not oh, oh, I thought you, okay. <laughs> Sorry Definitely about that. not a teacher. Okay. I can make right. it. But thank okay. you so much. Have an awesome All right. day. Okay. All right, Christy. Thanks. Appreciate that. All right. Sounds good. Uriah, you want to ask your question here about syndication? Absolutely. Good morning, Hi, everyone. Buddy. Yeah, good to have you. Absolutely. Um, so I wanted to ask, what, what are some of the key fundamentals that you should consider when syndicating the bill from your experience? Well, a, you know, because it's quote unquote family and friends or associates or colleagues or so, you know, that's super important to me. So what I need to consider is that the deal really works. <laughs> that's the first thing, because I don't want to go to Joel and say, hey, I want you to invest in something unless I because I treat his money or anyone else's money almost more importantly than my own money. Like I would rather take a hit before you take a hit personally, because people talk. And if I have this reputation of not being a steward of people's money, then it's going to be hard for me to raise money the next time. So, again, I don't think the short game, I always think the long game. I'm always thinking about the future and the reputation and not just one deal. One deal, I can't retire off one deal. So the, the, the most important thing to me is, does the deal really pencil? Does it have a lot of juice in it and a lot of room to make mistakes? for people to still make money. And then in addition to that, you know, another key thing is, you know, I put together a really, really good package to, in a succinct way, not something super long and drawn out, but people can get it because most folks do not understand the hotel investment world. 
And I may be t- speaking to people who are professionals who are in other worlds. So I have to make it simple enough for them to just get it and get comfortable because confused people don't do anything. You know, if they don't understand it, they're not going to invest with you. So that that's another key, key component. And it's just, and it's just relationships, you know, just, just constantly just conducting yourself in a certain way where people trust you, people feel good about working with you. So, and when people, people want to ride the wave, they see that you're winning and they see that you're, you're, you're successful and you're creating returns for your investors. They want to be a part of that. So. And, and are there any specific minimum rates of returns that you're looking at presenting? To... Absolutely. I'm Absolutely. Sorry? Yes, okay. yes, yes. So, you know, hotels you know, could be a little bit higher risk factor. So we seek higher returns. So if it was multifamily, people may look for a low teens return. In hospitality, you know, we're trying to get high teens over a 20 as far as an IRR. We look to get, you know, a double digit cash on cash return. You know, double digit is anything north of 10% on an annual basis. We want to be able to clip that on a quarterly basis to our investors or so. And we want to achieve north of a 2x multiple. So, you know, doubling your money over a five year period. Got it. Awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. Sounds good. Yeah, Uri is a CCM student right now, so uh, he's got all these deep questions coming at coming at me all the time. With <laughs> so, okay, okay, that's good. That's good, Uri. Thank you so much for your input there, E. Jordan. I, it looks like you just had a statement um, where you're going to say anything else about concierge versus uh, not having that with Airbnb, or was that just a, a statement? I think that was just a just a statement there. All right. We'll move on. Monica, what are key factors in creating your story and winning the bid? And you spoke to that a good bit earlier, but Monica, I think you got in a little bit late. You want to summarize that real quick? What are some of those key factors? It's really it's really reading the RFP thoroughly and making sure that you're 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 hitting all the checkboxes in the RFP and, and you really understand what's really important to the administration and, and you look to really just maximize those particular areas. So equity and inclusion was important. Obviously, affordable housing is is important. So what the community wants is important. So just making sure we really check those boxes off and just just capturing all the needs of the RFP to a point where we're, we're fortunate to, to, to be awarded the deal. So. All right. Sounds good. Monica, is that good? Hopefully so. Yes, that's great. Thank you so much. Fantastic. Matt, what are the key components that make a deal look attractive to you? That's a very broad question because it depends on asset classes and everything else. But unless, Matt, you want to elaborate on that or want to just go with that? I I, I think I can answer that. Okay. All right. I mean, for me, what key components that make a a deal look attractive is, is there an opportunity to add value to a deal? I mean, that, that's really that that's really what I love. You know, like I said, we, we like to buy things that are broken, under undercapitalized, you know, under mismanaged, something broken about the deal. And can we bring a solution to it and just create value that that's that's just the bottom line. Mm-hmm. And then when it starts from a from a number standpoint, it's our basis. You know, what do we like I said, we make our money on a buy. What are we buying it at? You know, is our basis low enough? That gives us a lot of cushion and room for even some of the volatility, you know, that can happen from a market perspective. And the good thing about hotels is 
we can look at how a market is how a sub market has performed over the last 10 years. You know, we can we can pull what's called a star report and we can look at a specific competitive set of properties, five or six properties, and we can see the average rate, the average occupancy for every single month over the last 10 years. So we think the best indication of what's going to happen tomorrow is what has happened yesterday, right? So we just, we analyze that data and we make educated assumptions on what we think is going to happen tomorrow. And again, for us, it's all about the basis. Because even if we're off and even if the market shows something different, we bought it low enough where we can weather that storm. So it's a basis, basis, basis play and a, an opportunity for us to create value. That That's our strategy. Yeah, yeah. And you can't really emphasize that enough because, um, you know, again, that's how you weather the storm. You couldn't look back in history and predict COVID. No. Nobody would have known, right? But exactly. if the basis was off, if the basis was too high, then you're in trouble, right? That's so right. It always That's comes right. back to basis on every deal. It always comes back to basis. So appreciate you bringing that up. And by the way, I know most of you folks are here in Atlanta just to give you a visual. Um, if you know where the Ritz-Carlton is downtown, if you look diagonally across the street from there, that's the hotel that uh, Evans uh, owned at that point in time. So um, just a little landmark for you right next to 200 Peachtree Street going downtown uh, before you get to the equitable building. So for, for your Atlanta heads. All right. Appreciate that. And then hopefully, Matt, that answers your question. But Pam, you had a question. What is the, what is the minimum investment on one of your projects? So what would you say, Evans? Um, that have changed as the projects grow larger in size. So today... Not a thousand bucks anymore? No, it's not a thousand anymore. <laughs> it was at one point, but uh, it has definitely evolved since then. I would say that we're probably looking at deals, you know, at least a $10 million. Well, this is, I'm not answering your question, so I don't want to scare you. At least a $10 million equity check, which would equate to a $30 plus million deal, right? So that's kind of like on a smaller side, but that's kind of like what's been like a sweet spot of deals that we've been looking at in, in hospitality. And, and when it comes to that, I would say that today, you know, it's probably more close to $100,000 minimum to be on what's called the GP or general partner side of the capital stack. There's a limited partner who's who's predominantly most of the equity. Then there's a general partner who's a portion of the equity. And that's typically what we're syndicating today. And that 100,000, I tell people who may not have 100 themselves that if, if I don't want to deal with a bunch of people, but if you had a couple people that you brought to the table and you were you formed an LLC that you're the managing member of, and I never have to deal with because I don't want to deal with a lot of people. And you had two people that made up your hundred, you put up fifty, somebody else put up fifty, or you put up twenty-five and two, whatever, whatever you did, I've provided access to entry into some of our deals by structuring it that way for people who may not have that hundred thousand dollar minimum investment. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Okay. So that answers the question. So yeah, very good point. And I just want to emphasize one thing as we, we kind of wrap up here. Evans is not being arrogant by saying he doesn't want to deal with a whole bunch of people. Well, why don't you answer it? Because you're you're the guest. Why, why wouldn't you want to deal with a whole bunch of people? And why is that not being arrogant? Well, if I'm doing a $30 million deal and I have 150 people that put up $10,000. I'm just throwing out a number. 
that's calling me about their investments on. I wouldn't be able to grow. You know what I mean? If I had to just, I can't do that. That's just not, <laughs> that's nothing to do with arrogance. It's just time and, and, and how I'm going to manage my time going forward or so. So, um, you know, but, but the purpose of me doing it is because I don't want to leave that person out because I can only deal with the person. Let's just say I only want to deal with a guy who can write a million dollar check, right? There's very few of those, you know, a lot fewer of people like that. But other folks that just want to get in and invest and be a part of this, I want to try to just give access to it. But in exchange, I, I can't deal with yeah. 150 people for one deal. Yeah, exactly. So that's why I want you to bring that out, because it's, it's mm-hmm. certainly it's understanding the, the manpower that goes into getting these deals done. And if you're taking phone calls every five minutes, you know, right. when am I going to get my $10,000 back? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. 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 Exactly. Right. Right, right. Oh right. man, yeah, you get a short fuse on that real quick. So yeah, I get it. So all right. Well, hey, I certainly appreciate it, man. This has been a great call. Awesome. In conclusion, I'm gonna give you the last word. What would you say to uh people that would love to follow in your footsteps? Because that's what this is all about. It's it's giving exposure, introducing, you know, people to our audience to folks that have made uh, significant progress in the commercial real estate space. Uh, you're one of those people that I view as uh, one of those success stories. So what would you say to um to the ones coming up behind you to encourage them to keep going or to get involved? Yeah, well, whatever it is, you know, if you're, you know, it's to, to me, I, I think that the difference maker was just was just passion and ambition, right? And I really emphasize that because you can look at other folks who are investing or developing projects at a certain level and you see talent, right? For me, you know, and I don't know, I, I just, I don't know if I necessarily had more talent than someone else, but I was willing to work harder than someone else. I know that much, right? So even if you ran faster than me, you were smarter than me, I was willing to put in those extra hours to keep reading and to keep going and keep going and figure it out. And I just think that whenever I meet people, and I meet a lot of folks who are interested in investing, and but I'm really attracted to helping people that I can see have a burning desire. And you can't teach that. So, you know, you want to be passionate about whatever you choose to do. And if this is something you want to get into, you know, if your heart is in it and you're passionate and you're willing to put in the time to learn, to be a mentee, to build relationships, Mm -hmm. people who we're all really busy. But for the most part, we would put we would invest time in in people who we see have a strong passion and a hunger because if, if you have that. I know you're going to be successful. It's just going to be a matter of time or so. So I just want to emphasize ambition and passion and loving something that you'll, I won't say I'll do it for free, but I love doing it, right? Mm -hmm. I love what I do. And it's not just, you know, money. I mean, the money, like, like, like I shared earlier when I, when I made my first profit, I just put it into another deal. Like I'm way more enamored about the process, about bringing an idea to something and creating something that out of nothing or taking something that was dilapidated and creating something that I can look back when, even when I go to Atlanta now, like it just feels good that that was a dilapidated multifamily building. And now it's a Marriott and that came from my brain, you know? <laughs> so that, that <laughs> so I don't know. I just, I enjoy that stuff, you know? So yeah. just be hungry and be ambitious and be passionate. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to, to conclude, man, because, um, that's what it's all about. Like you said, you can't teach hunger, right? Mm-hmm. The person, mm-hmm. They got to want it. They got to, because if they don't want it, you don't want to invest the time in them, right? Because yep. you, you want to see their success. 
And uh, I think we can both agree there will be bad days. And if you don't have a passion for it, you won't get out of bed. Right? Yep. That passion yep. to get you out of bed. So, you know, certainly appreciate it. So, Evans, it's been fantastic. Um, it's been a pleasure. can't let so many years go by without catching up with each other again. So, exactly. Exactly. You know, I'll, I'll take the blame for that, but, you know, okay. I'll do better in the future. You know, okay. maybe next time we'll meet up at the Super Bowl. That'll be kind of cool. There we go. <laughs> so, there we go. Yeah, so that'll, that'll all work out. But um, yep. this has been fantastic. And, uh, you know, obviously much more success to you and all that you're doing. Thank you so much. Fantastic. I appreciate it. Yeah, we're, we're real happy for you. So, um, again, for everyone listening, this is the Mornings with Joel CRE podcast. We want to thank our special guest, Evan Shaw, for being here today. And uh, thank you so much for being part of our audience today. Thank you so much. And Evan, All right. You. All thank right. you. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Have a great day. Okay, bro. Take care. Everybody. All right. Take Have care. You've been listening to Mornings with Joel, commercial real estate podcast where we focus on rising stars and established players in commercial real estate and talk to them about how they are building legacies in today's marketplace. Please check back weekly to hear our upcoming guests.